morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Carrie Marr, whose new novel, The Paris Bookseller, is about the life and work of Sylvia Beach, whose Shakespeare and Company bookstore was an institution in 1920s and 30s Paris. Carrie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So um, I will admit, I knew a little bit about about Sylvia Beach and about Shakespeare and Company when I started reading this novel, Um, but probably a lot of our listeners don't know. So just give us a little bit of background about who briefly was Sylvia Beach. So Sylvia Beach was the American woman who opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in 1919. And it quickly became the home of the lost generation writers, you know, those, all those famous writers of the 1920s that we think of, um, you know, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, you know, they all went to Shakespeare and Company um, and spent really quite a lot of time there. And some, in some cases, used Shakespeare and Company as their post office office box in Paris, their permanent address in Paris. And as if that wasn't enough, um, she also published the very first edition of James Joyce's novel Ulysses in 1922. So we're coming up on the centennial. Um, after it had become a banned book in a big obscenity trial in New York in 1921. Yeah, yeah. So we can't talk about this book really without first talking about Paris, I think. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, just for you personally, did you get to spend some time in Paris while you were while you were working on the book or have you spent time in Paris? I did. So I feel very privileged and fortunate that I was able to do that before the world shut down in the yeah. summer of uh, 2019. And actually I have a great little story if you'll humor me about, yeah. about my stay in Paris. I, I wanted to stay really in the neighborhood where, you know, these writers lived and where the, the original stores were located, which of course is, you know, the fifth, sixth arrondissement in Paris, which is, you know, very touristed area, an expensive place to stay. And I'm on Airbnb looking for places to stay. And a very good friend of mine who lives in London, I knew was going to come and stay with me. And um, I'm like getting depressed that there's nowhere for me to stay. And I see suddenly Airbnb like shows me this suggestion that they call James Joyce flat. And I thought, no. And the very first photo is actually of the plaque on the outside of the building that says James Joyce and his family stayed here in 1921 while he was writing Ulysses. And it was actually the, the owner of the flat was a French writer named Valerie Larbeau, who was a very good friend of Sylvia's. And she actually writes in her own memoir about this summer that James Joyce and his family stayed in this apartment. So I wind up corresponding with the owner, the current owner of this flat and saying, you know, it's way too expensive. It's out of my budget, but could I come see it? (laughs) Um, And so long story short, I wound up, he he lowered his price for me and I got to stay there. And so, and it, 
it, it didn't, nobody actually knows which flat it was, but it was definitely in, in this building that was on this lovely leafy courtyard uh, set back from the main street. Um, and just up the, up the road is another plaque that says Ernest Hemingway stayed here in his first years in Paris. So I was really in it when I was yeah, there. It was that's great. Fantastic. I mean, I think there's nothing, there's no replacement for being able to be sort of in that physical space. I've had that a lot with, with my novels where even just spending a short amount of time in the physical space, just, you almost can't put it into words. It just opens up your mind to, to what might've happened there, I think. Uh, Absolutely. And I feel, like I said, I feel so lucky that I was able to do it before the world shut down. So Sylvia Beach's relationship with Paris was much more than just opening a, a bookstore. How did How did Paris as a city sort of shape her character? Well, so her first exposure to Paris was as a teenager. Her father, Sylvester, was a uh, Presbyterian minister. And he, um, when she was 15 years old, he was uh, brought over to Paris to be the, um, the pastor of the American church in Paris. So the whole family went over. And so she just fell in love with Paris at this time. You know, she, um, she was a voracious reader. So she was reading the literature. She was learning the language. And, um, you know, there was really, in the end, although she did a great deal of travel in the early part of her life, there was no substitute for Paris. And she, she returned to the United States and, um, during her time, those years in the United States, she campaigned for women's suffrage. She did some writing of her own. Um, but the end of World War I, uh, 1917, found her back in Paris with her sister Cyprian. Um, they were living in the Palais Royal. And um, she found her way to a French bookstore and lending library owned by an, a French woman named Adrienne Monnier, called La Maison des Amis de Livre, the House of the Friends of Books. And Sylvia just, in addition to falling in love with Paris, falls in love with this bookstore and the life of, of a bookseller in Paris. And it does shape the rest of her life. She lives the rest of her adult life in Paris. She never lives in America again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you've given us a sense of this already, but the, the story, Sylvia's story and the story of Shakespeare and Company, this is, this is, kind of an epic. I mean, it covers a long period of time. How did you decide where you were going to start uh, and, and how you were going to write a book that didn't end up being, you know, five times longer than Ulysses itself? <laughs> Yeah, so there was a lot of experimenting with like, we'll call it the frame of the novel. Like mm -hmm. yeah. I knew where I wanted it to start. I knew it needed to start at 19, in 1917 when she goes into Adrienne's shop because I think something, even people who know of Shakespeare and Company, the original Shakespeare and Company and know Sylvia Beach ran it, don't know, um, most people don't know of the relationship between her store and Adrienne's store. And so, and, and also, and by extension, the relationship between Sylvia and Adrienne, which, um, you know, had took many forms over the years. It was, it was a romantic relationship for the better part of two decades. Um, but so I knew it needed to start there um, because it really shows the genesis of the store for her. Um, but the question about where to, where to end it was, was an, a harder one. Um, I decided that it made the most sense to kind of end it in the, the mid to late thirties um, when the kind of the story of her publication of Ulysses was complete. Yeah. Um, that just, it just made the most sense to me to, to, to finish it there. Mm -hmm. 
You you write about this time period, especially when she's first starting to open the store, the, the late teens and the early 20s in America. Um, you write, and, and this is again, talking talk about America. It seems like ideas that had once been fringe, too strange to <laughs> contemplate as serious, had taken root. Do you see parallels and did you try to tease out parallels in the novel between the 1920s in America and the 2020s in America? <laughs> um, I didn't have to do much teasing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that the, I mean, as I was writing about the post office in the, in the 19-teens being used as an instrument of censorship, you know, so we have the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice run by John Sumner. Um, uh, seize it using the post office to seize copies of these avant-garde literary journals that contained so-called obscene material, so-called obscene fiction, um, and and effectually confiscating it out of the mail and and incinerating it. You know, as I'm writing that, you know, the poor post office is being maligned in the the current press for you know voter fraud. Is it you know it's a totally different set of circumstances? But I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, the poor post office—they just want to deliver the mail. <laughs> um, but so there are these interesting you know large and small resonances with a hundred years later. And yeah, I mean, this idea of these fringe ideas becoming mainstream ideas. Um, was was a theme for me, you know, like prohibition had been a fringe idea, and yeah. but it became the law of the land, um, the great experiment. And it was those kinds of conservative ideas, you know, not just prohibition, but there was deep, deep anti-immigrant sentiment and real suspicion about um, other, other, other kinds of uh, ways of thinking about government, you know, the anarchy, Anarchists were um, making a lot of noise at this time. The the communists, the Marxists, were making a lot of noise. Socialists, there's all kinds of different degrees of different different political views, and they were really being silenced. Um, and the American and and as a result, art was being censored and silenced. And so these American writers who wanted to remake the world from the ashes and rubble of World War One um, really kind of felt like they had to leave America to do that. And so they found themselves in Paris. Um, you you um, I, I recently saw a play called the Lehman Trilogy on Broadway, and like this novel. This is a play that is ostensibly about a business, but really it's about all these personal relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and you alluded to a minute ago, the relationship between Sylvia and Adrienne. Why did you wanna make that relationship sort of, I, I feel like that's the heart of, the, of this novel, you know, that like there's, there's, there's the body and there's the soul, but to me, that's like the real heart of the novel. Why, why did you wanna to focus in on that in the way that you did? Well, I have, I mean, I really, the material demanded it, <laughs> um, you know, so, so Sylvia, like I said, you know, she, she finds herself in Adrienne's shop. She falls in love with the shop and with Adrienne and Adrienne also falls in love with her. And so they embark on this romantic relationship that is also a kind of business partnership. They're not financially entangled per se, but, you know, originally Shakespeare and company opens up around the corner from, from Adrienne's shop, but within two years, she's able to move across the street from Adrienne's shop. So once both stores are on the Rue de l'Odeon, they're really 
kind of of a piece. They're they're almost like the same store. Like, and they're much of their clientele is the same. Um, you know, the the multilingual clients will shop at both shop and, and check out books from both stores. In particular, you know, our Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce, who were fluent in French, and many of uh, uh, Adrienne's French clientele use at uh, Sylvia's shop. You know, originally Sylvia thought of Shakespeare and company as catering to the French intellectual community who were hungry to read books in English, but those were books were really hard to come by in Paris at this time. So she really felt originally like she was doing a service to this French intellectual community, but it quickly became a hub for the, for the, the, the expats of the, yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it's really, and, and once, once they were across the street from each other, Adrienne deemed their two stores, um, Odeonia, which is like this, <laughs> this sort of like beautiful mythical term for this literary paradise that they were really living in. James Joyce called it Stratford on Odeon. <laughs> so you just get a sense for how magical a place it really was. Yeah. Yeah. I, so astute listeners will who have also read my book will have recognized your reference to the Society for the Suppression of Vice, which I mentioned in Escaping Dreamland when they're shutting down um, ferry resorts on the Bowery in the 1890s. Um, but that leads me to my next question, which is in the process of discussing this fascinating romantic business mentor relationship between Adrienne and Sylvia, you also kind of delve into the differences, I think fascinating differences um, in queer history between France and the United States. Can tell, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this was also super interesting in my research. And it was something that I had to really like make sure that I was getting as right as I could, you know, these low, these hundred years later. Um, but I think one of the most interesting, two of the most interesting things I found were these, which is that the concept kind of of the closet and of being out is a later in the 20th century concept. It really didn't exist for these people in the, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and also, and so the idea of, of being in a same-sex relationship was just, it was just viewed differently in the teens and 20s than it is viewed now. So I had to put myself in kind of a different mindset. The other component that I was, I was totally fascinated by is that same-sex relations had been decriminalized in France from the time of the French Revolution. And so I think many people intuit that Paris has kind of always been a safe haven for um, queer culture and queer couples, but without really realizing why. And that is one of the reasons why. You know, gay cabarets and bars and um, were, were popular in the 1920s in all major metropolitan cities, New York, Chicago, Berlin, and Paris, but only in Paris were they not illegal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the recurring motifs I see in this novel is this desire that Sylvia has to help others. She likes she likes to solve other people's problems, often without thought as to how those solutions might affect her and sometimes negatively affect her. T tell us a little bit more about that character trait in Sylvia. You know, that's such a great question. You know, she does have a tendency to rush into things headlong, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she does. She And I think that's sort of charming about her. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, so she has this idea to open a bookstore and she very quickly does it. Like she's very committed to the idea. Um, and once, and that's something else about her is that even though she does sometimes rush into things headlong, she is committed to them when she does them. Yeah. It's not like she does them and then like loses interest and moves on. That is not the case. So, you know, she is committed to Shakespeare and company um, her whole life, really. Even once the store closes in some ways, she's still committed to it as an idea. Yeah. Um, and likewise with publishing James Joyce's Ulysses, um, you know, so she'd been watching at, with all of the rest of her literary friends, the progress of, of Ulysses moving through the American court system and wondering what's going to happen and really cheering for Ulysses from, from their, their perch in Paris and hoping for the best because she, she's at this point, she's friends with James Joyce. She's, you know, she believes in his literary genius. She believes in the book that she believes the book is going to change the world. Um, and so they're all waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen to its publication wise. So when it, when it's, when it's found to be obscene and becomes a banned book, um, she very quickly realizes that she should be the one to publish it um, from Paris, um, where it, it hasn't been nothing. It's not banned. It's not illegal in Paris. But then, of course, she has to figure out how to smuggle it back into the United States, <laughs> as I like to say, alongside the illegal hooch, because, you know, it's prohibition. So she actually calls herself a booklegger, like a bootlegger. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I just love this image of, you know, we think of like Al Capone and all these sort of classic bootleggers and then at the same time she's trying to sneak in ulysses which right now right. You know, it, 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 any your typical american right now probably you would have to really force them to sit down and read ulysses but let's talk about <laughs> ulysses for a minute because it is a really okay. part of this book yes uh, and i guess yes. my first question is um did you read had you read ulysses before or did you read it while you were working on this book and, and if so in what ways did it did it in, in inform your view of joyce and the way you portray Joyce as a character. Yeah, you know, I had to refresh my memory on Ulysses. I mean, I would say my face, my favorite James Joyce is really Portrait of the Artist yeah. as a Young Man. I feel like, you know, writers, everyone, every time I say that, everyone nods and goes, yes, I loved it too. <laughs> you know, we, I feel like we all read it in college <laughs> um, or earlier. High or just me, short, yeah, or yeah. yeah, exactly. Or a little bit earlier, a little bit later. And we all remember it kind of as a formative, like, you know, yes, we were also young artists um, re while, while we read that book. So um, that book, you know, I sort of also gave that to Sylvia um, very authentically as a, as a favorite book of hers also. Um, and I don't, I also want to say that you do not have to have read Ulysses or even plan to read Ulysses to read the Paris bookseller. It's, oh, no, not it's not that's, something that's that you, that you true. not have. Yeah. It's not, it's not a requirement at all. Yeah. Um, I had fun playing with the idea because of course, Ulysses is based on Homer's uh, Odyssey, which is about, um, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to have an embarrassing mind blank. It's about Odysseus yeah. trying to make his way home to Greece for after the Trojan War, going back to Penelope um, and his son Telemachus. So, you know, I had fun with this idea of home and a journey home um, uh, in the writing of the book, um, which obviously James Joyce's novel is also um, rooted in this idea, um, although it all takes place in, in Dublin, as we know, on a single day in 1904. Um, because 
you know, how could I not be? We're talking about the quote, lost generation of American and British writers who were living away from their, their original homes and making new homes in Paris. Um, so I just, I thought that that all of those themes had a lot of resonances um, in the book. And I tend to like to ask questions more than I answer them. So, yeah, I would, I would certainly agree because I have not read Ulysses. I've read parts of it, but, and, and in fact, after reading this book, I was like, maybe I should go read Ulysses. Um, but you, cer <laughs> you certainly do not have to have read it or even feel bold enough to think about reading it to really enjoy um, enjoy this novel. Um, let's let's talk about that lost generation for, for a minute. Um, Sylvia and her bookstore become this magnet, as you said, for, for American expatriates, Irish expatriates, British expatriates, um, uh, including, you know, writers that we all know like Hemingway and Pound and Eliot. Um, what is it about, you think, the expatriate that makes them of particular appeal to the novelist? It seems like there's something there's something about that relationship between a person and his country um, that novelists have kind of been drawn to over the years. Yeah, you know, uh, James Joyce, I, I actually, I don't remember the origin of this quote, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he he says at some point in his career that he's an Irishman who, who left Ireland, who seems forever doomed to write about Ireland yeah. from afar. Um, it's, I don't know, like, Writers talk a lot about like the 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 primary wound, like what's the wound at the at the heart of the of the book, right? And I think for the the writers of this generation, um, one of the wounds, one of the common wounds, is the is the leaving of home, right? Like the the feeling that there is no home um, anymore because of the war. The war decimated their the land itself, right? Um, yeah. A generation of people. Um, it decimated the idea of home, the, uh, the, 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 the morals and the social fabric that they were raised in was no more. So they had to, they were on, on that level lost or they, they weren't lost, but they were, they were finding their way <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. to new homes. And I think that's what's so amazing and revolutionary about this generation of writers, especially we can see now from the vantage point of a hundred years later, right? Um, is that we can see their search for meaning and, and home in their work and in their, in the way they live their lives. And, you know, speaking for any of us who've ever, who've ever run a bookstore or worked in a bookstore or even hung out in a bookstore, this idea that, you know, just on a daily basis, oh, T.S. Eliot shows up and reads you his new poem and Auden pops by and Joyce is being cranky in the corner. You know, it's just, if you, if it wasn't real, I don't think we would believe your invention of it. You know what I mean? The truth is in fact, stranger than fiction. Yeah. It is, abs that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Now, this is very much the story of, Sylvia, and it was, you write it in the third person, but what I would call a very intimate third person. We were, we're privy to, to Sylvia's thoughts, her, her emotions, her feelings. Why did, why did you choose the third person instead of writing this as a, as a first person um, narrative in her voice? 
Yeah. You know, I love this question because all three of my historical novels so far have been um, close third person. And, and, you know, I could have chosen first person, as you say. And the reason I don't is because I feel that that these were real people. (laughs) They, they had their own voices and their own lives that they actually lived. And my novel is an interpretation of that life necessarily. And I feel that that, that third person is that paper thin recognition of the fact that I'm writing an interpretation that I'm writing a novel and it gives me that paper thin little bit of permission to do that interpretation and to occasionally comment I try not to do this as so so much but you know there are times when I can't help but wink at the my 21st century reader. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's true. We, I was having a long discussion with some friends the other day about historical novels, and we were talking about the, the, the double importance of the author having permission to make it a novel, that we understand right. you're not writing a work of nonfiction, you're writing a novel, uh, but then also the importance of the author's note Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the author's note. <laughs> as as my very good friend and and in many ways mentor Kate Quinn said, all at, at a conference, all hail the author's note. <laughs> um, yes, I mean it is really the place. It is a mini essay. Yep. It is it is the place where the writer gets to talk very directly and honestly with their readers about what they did and did not do, and the reasons that they made those choices. You know, um, like with this book, I got to say, I am sorry to all Hemingway aficionados, but I had to bring him on the scene six months before he actually did arrive in Paris. It's yep. just it was necessary for narrative tension. Um, Thank you for understanding. <laughs> um, so, and and it is it is important because there is this tension when, especially when we're writing biographical fiction. So we're writing about real people, um, people who lived. Um, there's this tension between really wanting to let's just say get it right, right? Like the facts, you know, the the really important facts, right? And the kind of essence of these people's lives. So there's that we're trying to do that at the same time that we are also interpreting their lives. And there's a, there's a tension there. Um, and the author's note, like, like you've said, and like, I think I maybe be repeating myself now is the place where we can talk about that tension in um, a confessional way. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I've always felt strongly that a life is not a novel, you know, I mean, we, we, we don't structure our right. lives in chapters right. with beginnings and right. ends and, perfect character right. arcs and all these other things. And so, yeah, we, we have to, we have to do that. Um, and as you said, the author's note is, is where we can sort of pull the curtain back and say, well, here's, here's what we did and what we didn't do. Um, there's, there's a great line in this book that really jumped out for me. And I think it will for everybody who loves books, uh, a life for and among books was not just possible, but worthy. How has that idea played out in your own life? Ah, oh, well, so, um, in many ways, you know, I graduated in college. Let's start in college. So I was in, um, an undergraduate English major with an art history minor. Um, and I was also working in the university's rare books conservation department. So I was able, I was actually working with the rare papers conservator to mend, like literally physically mend, um, Russian propaganda posters and notably Jack Kerouac's letters. (laughs) 
I got to like actually hold them in my hands and like piece them back together with glue, like this very fine glue and Japanese paper. Um, it, and I was doing it on a table right next to somebody who was trying to um, conserve like a, an 18th century Bible. So that really gave me a lifelong sense of books and literary artifacts as objects of art, right? Like that they really are to be handled and handled with care and revered as, 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 as artifacts. Um, so, and then shortly after I graduated from college, I found myself working in an independent bookstore in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and it was a neighborhood a lot like Paris at this time. Um, it was full of aspiring writers. The, the, the entire staff was aspiring writers. Um, and our clientele was a mixture of uh, publishing professionals, famous writers, aspiring writers, and just your average person who wanted a great book. Um, and so, you know, all of that was had happened to me around two decades ago. And so I got to, but I got to bring all of that to bear on my writing about Sylvia Beach and Shakespeare and company. And so it's funny, you know, one of my my younger brother's um, good friends, who's also a writer, used to say in high school, it's all material for the novel. (laughs) And, you know, this book for me, my whole life really turned out to be material for this novel. Like so many things that I did in my earlier days as, you know, I was just making my way in the world, right? And, but I was putting together experiences that I could use later. I mean, who knew that I was, when I was, when I was working in the conservation department, I had no idea I would write about Sylvia Beach one day and that that experience would be important then, but it, it was. Yeah. Well, listeners who have read my books at all or who know me, uh, are going to realize that in the prost in the in the last two minutes while you were talking about all that, I'm sitting here thinking, we got to get together and have a beer sometime because like she ah. does rare, she does rare books con- conservation, which was like the whole topic of one of my novels. So, anyhow, ah. but that's but 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 besides besides that, let's let's go back and um, let's talk about research a little bit. So you really do get into Sylvia's inner life. Um, did she leave diaries? Did she leave letters? What what did you have as sort of a, a, a doorway in into that life? So she left behind a memoir, which is called mm-hmm. Shakespeare and Company, which I, I think I say this in my author's note. It's an incredibly slim volume considering what an enormous life she led. Yeah. Um, so I definitely, you know, I actually read that for the first time in college. <laughs> um, so I've known her story for my entire adult life. Um so, but I, I definitely reread her memoir when I was um, before in the research stages of this book. Um, I, there are various letters that she wrote, volumes of letters that have been published that I read. Um, I also read the, the definitive biography of her. Um, not, it really reads, it's called Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation by Noelle Riley Fitch. And it's, it's a really compelling read. I mean, if anyone who's interested in this time period, it's a great, it's a great book to read. So it's not just about Sylvia Beach. It's also really about Paris in these two decades. And I learned so much from, from that book. Um, And so those were the ways that I, I kind of got Sylvia's ideas and voice in my head enough to to feel like I could write it in that close third person from her point of view. Yeah. Now, of course, you're not just writing about Sylvia Beach. We talked about all these other um, well-known authors and sort of Parisian characters like Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas, you know, who who show up in your book. Um, 
who, I mean, apart from, apart from Sylvie, uh, Sylvia and Adrienne, who did you really enjoy writing? Who did, what real person did you have glee in bringing to life? <laughs> So, okay, so there are two. So one was Ernest Hemingway. So I got to bring Ernest Hemingway on the scene as this young, hungry journalist with the Toronto Star. He was nobody. He was just this really handsome, ambitious young man. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been the, the, the feature of a lot of historical fiction in recent years, some of which I've just absolutely loved. You know, The Paris Wife is one of my Perfect, absolute yeah. hands down fa fa favorites. Um, but, you know, those books have been from very different kinds of perspectives. Uh, Sylvia, you know, because she's romantically involved with Adrienne and, and Hemingway is to her much more of a brother type figure. So their relationship, I got to write about Hemingway from such a different vantage point because I was writing about him from Sylvia's perspective. And, and so Sylvia, I think had a much more sort of, like I said, sisterly kind of view on Ernest Hemingway yeah. and she's older than he is. And, um, and so that was super fun. The other fun character uh, was Ezra Pound. Yeah. Um, you know, I, so I don't, you know, poor Ezra really winds up on the wrong side of history with World War II and everything. But during this time uh, in his life, in the early, the late teens, early twenties, he's this young poet. Um, and he really, and he's also an editor of, um, and functioning kind of almost as a, as a consultant at various other of these avant-garde literary journals. And he really sees the kind of big picture of what is happening in literature in this moment. And he is really trying to put people together in productive ways. And he also, he settles in Paris and he brings these writer, other writers to Paris. I mean, he is writing people letters like Joyce. He gets Joyce to move to Paris with his family um, in 1921. He said, Paris is the place to be. Um, and it's really due in large part to Ezra's um, Pound's uh, efforts that Paris in the 20s happened. But also, I loved learning this, He's sort of a, he's, he was an amateur carpenter. And so he yeah. used to like fix things in Shakespeare and company. And he used to build some, build furniture. Um, and so it's really things like that, that you find out about these real people that bring them to life in your, the writer's imagination as real people. Yeah. Um, so you um, mentioned that you'd worked in an independent bookstore. I've had the, the, the pleasure to be involved at the opening of more than one uh, bookshop. And just as in your novel, when Shakespeare and Company opens, it, it is something that tends to be accompanied by, by cheers and celebration, I think much more so than the opening of any other kind of business. What, what is it about a bookshop that makes it different from other sorts of businesses? Well, I think it's the people who go there, right? Like mm -hmm. those of us who go to independent bookstores, we really believe in them as, um, projects as essential pieces of the literary project, right? Um, that the people who work there are readers, that they they read broadly, that they that when you're just anybody from off the street wanders in and says, I like to read books by um, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, what should I read next? Um, that that person is going to be able to hand you a great book that you you're actually going to really love and that you can come back the next day that you know a week later and ask for something else um and that that also that bookstores are meeting places for other writers for other readers and that they have in them not just 
books on the shelves that contain intellectual life, but that intellectual life can flourish in the chit chat over the books on the tables. So, and And I think all of us are just really invested in that as a, as a project. There's a great line um, that Sylvia says about one of her customers and friends. She says, anyone who read that much had to be given to empathy. What, what do you think is the value of reading in 2020s America? Well, I, I think it has to be that, like that, that the, re- the more you read, the more open your mind can become, the more empathetic you can become. You know, there was this study and I, I cannot cite it, but I think if you Google sort of reading and empathy, you can find it. There was a study that was done recently that actually showed that after reading a particular passage, people's minds were in fact more predisposed to um, empathetic emotions, to understanding other points of view and other ideas that were different from their own. And goodness, if we don't need that now, we we certainly need it now (laughs) more than ever. Do you you think that the bookstores and booksellers still have the ability and maybe even the responsibility to shape the culture in the way that, that, Sylvia Beach was able to do through Shakespeare and Company? Um, You know, I think Shakespeare and Company was a sort of a special, a special set of circumstances in a special moment. Um, It was also a moment when writers were like rock stars, right? Like they, you know, when Ernest Hemingway and, and, and F. Scott Fitzgerald became celebrities, they were like Bradley Cooper, yeah. That like, you know, and it's just not the same now. Um, so I'm not sure I can make quite that comparison, but I, I definitely think independent bookstores today are part of the conversation. They want to be part of the conversation and they are shaping the conversation, you know, and I think um, it's on that point, you know, Shakespeare and Company was a female-owned bookstore, and I think that's an important yeah, part of its identity. Yeah. There are other bookstores that are Black-owned, that are owned by other um, people of color, and I think those bookstores have perspectives and carry certain kinds of books. They curate their collection of books for that identity, and it's important for people who are not people of color to go to those bookstores and expose themselves to the books that are on those shelves, because that's an important part of, of the empathy project and of opening your mind and of like reading widely. Yeah. Now this is a podcast. So my listeners cannot see what is hanging on the wall behind you, but I oh. can't, I can't not talk about it. So the cover okay. of this book, when you listeners go out and buy this book, the cover is this beautiful Usually cover art is, you know, stock artwork that's been messed around with a little bit in uh, in uh, some sort of editing software. But this is a this is a painting that was custom done for this book, if I'm not if I'm not wrong. Talk to us about the artwork that's hanging on the wall behind you. Yeah. So, so yes. So when, when my publisher Berkeley said that they were going to hire a painter to like paint Shakespeare and company for the cover of my book, I I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> and, and so there were some, and so they hired this painter named Terry Miura, who's who you can follow on Instagram. He's I follow him on Instagram. Um, and he, so there were these sketches before we decided on the, the you know, the official uh, final product that involves, so you'll see on the cover, there's Sylvia Beach and James Joyce and Sylvia's little shop dog, Teddy, yeah. who does play an important role in the novel. I actually requested Teddy. I was like, um, I think we should have Teddy on the cover. Um, so, um, 
I don't know what to say about it other than the fact that I feel so lucky that Berkeley decided to do this. And also I feel very lucky that I was able to obtain the painting. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's a um, fantastic thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, it is really a fantastic thing. And this, this used to happen more often. I actually have a friend who has hanging in his living room, the painting that was the dust jacket for NCYF's edition of Tom Sawyer. And it's Tom <gasps> Sawyer. Painting. And it's huge. You know, a dust jacket's not that big, but the painting is about, four or five feet tall, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Oh think, my gosh. Yeah, as, as a, as a fellow, um, someone with experience in sort of appreciating the book as physical object. I think it's yes. great that you, that, that they went that way with your book and that you have the painting hanging there behind you. It's just, uh, I, I wish our listeners could see it, but you'll see, you'll see it on the cover of the book. It's a great book cover. Well, um, I'm excited now to read your book. That's about book conservation. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go look, look for that as soon as we get off the podcast. So looking back on it, you know, now a hundred years after almost the publication of, of Ulysses and and the foundation of, of Shakespeare and Company, which has been a, a store that's been, the, that name has been revived under under various owners since then, not, not the original store. But I remember thinking when my child was in, in Paris several years ago and, and texted me and said, hey, there's a, there's a copy of the Bookman's Tale in Shakespeare and Company. I thought, okay, I've arrived. That's it. I'm, I'm a writer now. <laughs> that, yes, but, you have. You uh, have absolutely arrived. Uh, but what do, you, what do you see as the place of Shakespeare and Company in Western culture when all is said and done? Oh, wow. Big question. Well, first of all, I want to just give a shout out to the current Shakespeare and Company in Paris, which is not the original, but is very much an homage to the original and, and in the tradition of the original. It was opened. Sylvia had to close her store in 1941 during the Nazi occupation, and she didn't reopen. But the current Shakespeare and Company was opened in 1951 by another American named uh, George Whitman. Um, and it was originally called Le Mistral. And Sylvia was a regular there. Um, and it has its own really amazing history. I mean, it has been in that spot in Paris, looking at Notre Dame Cathedral for the entire second half of the 20th century into the 21st century. So it's really a remarkable place in and of itself. And you absolutely have arrived if your book um, <laughs> is there. Um, so, uh, so, so I'll just say that. So, um, what is the, the name Shakespeare and Company's place? I mean, I, I, I can't help but see it through the lens of this novel, right? Like it is, to me, it represents the vision and legacy of this amazing American woman who was an entrepreneur um, and, and opened this bookstore that was itself a work of art. Yeah. You know, I really feel like Shakespeare and Company was her... Ulysses, you might want to say. It was her um, tour de force. Um, and it did change the course of modern literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer, okay. be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners uh, a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, okay. we'll begin. All right. What word do you love to work into your writing? Thematically, paradox. Okay. Um, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Can I use a phrase? Sure. She let out a breath that she didn't know she was holding. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? Lately, the couch. Yeah. Uh, where could you never write? 
I could never write in a cafe if there's only one other person there, but I like to write in cafes where there's lots of ambient noise because I can sort of tune that out. Yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh, I'm a total grammar like person. <laughs> um, maybe uh, overuse. I, I like the dash. Many yeah. people would say yeah. I overuse the dash. What was the first book you remember reading? Oh, Green Eggs and Ham by uh, by Dr. Seuss. I remember yeah. reading it with my mom and really struggling to read it. Yeah. What are you reading now? I am listening because I'm a huge audiobook person. I'm listening to Mrs. Everything by Jennifer Weiner. Um, what book would you like to have written? Writers and Lovers by Lily King. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? You know, I'd love to write a dystopian novel, but I'm not sure I quite have the head for it. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, just that my book transported them to wherever the book is set. You know, so in this case, it would be Shakespeare and Company in Paris. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Carrie Marr, whose novel, The Paris Bookseller, is available wherever books are sold. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you today. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Fiona Davis about her new historical novel, The Magnolia Palace. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.